Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today's episode is a little bit different. I'd like to introduce everyone to a new podcast called Preaching Christ. As I'm sure everyone is aware already, what Christians should know is focused on Bible teaching, but my other podcast, Preaching Christ, is focused on Christ preaching. There are links in the podcast description if you'd like to hear more sermons like the one you're about to hear today. Now, Preaching Christ has been up and running for a while, but certainly it'll be new to you if you've never tuned in and listened before. We'll be posting a sermon every Friday during the month of January to give you a sample of what Preaching Christ has to offer. I hope you will follow the links, download, share, and subscribe. Church, I would ask the congregation to please stand and turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, as we first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. The NASB says... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Please be seated. So as we continue the series, The Gospel of Luke, we are now in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus was born. At the end of Luke chapter 2, there was a scene when Jesus was 12 in Jerusalem at the temple. Luke chapter 3 opens with the preaching of John the Baptist. And Luke chapter 3 ends when Jesus is baptized by John by the River Jordan. And immediately after Christ's baptism, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. 
And the title of this morning's sermon is The Temptation of Jesus, and we are going to answer three specific questions. We're going to answer number one, what is temptation? We're going to answer number two, how does the devil tempt? And we're going to answer number three, how do you resist temptation? So the first question is, what is temptation? Temptation refers to being enticed to sin, being lured to do something outside of the will of God. Temptation means you see a cookie jar that's not yours, your belly growls, your mouth salivates, and you want to grab the cookie. That's temptation, that's not sin. Sin is now giving into that temptation, going over to the cookie jar and taking a bite. And in our theme verses, the English word temptation is translated from a Greek word that is best translated not to tempt, but to test. And testing refers to putting something on trial to see how it responds. We know from what the text says that Jesus never gave in to temptation. So technically speaking, Luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 13 doesn't tell us about the temptation of Jesus, but the testation of Jesus. And let us not think... That testing only goes from the devil to Jesus, only goes from Satan to us. Everyone is always testing everyone else all the time. People test God all the time. They take a little bit of God, they take a little bit of their wants, hopes, and desires, put it all in the beaker, shake it up, and see what happens. The devil tempts people, puts them on trial to see how they respond, to see if they do that which is outside of the will of God. And, but God also tests people all the time. But when God tests you, he already knows what's in your heart. So when God tests you, he's doing you a favor. He's teaching you a lesson so you can look at yourself and see how you respond under duress. And why studying temptation is so important is simple. Because life is chock full of temptation. There is no freedom from temptation in this life. Just ask Jesus. As, Romans, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the Christian life is a fight. It's a war. It's a battle. He uses present tense language to say the Christian experience is a struggle, which means going up against temptation. In fact, if you don't know God, temptation doesn't exist. Because you have no law, you have no higher standard by which to live, therefore you eat, drink, be merry, and do as you please. But when you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, temptation is normal and no one ever sanctifies themselves out of ever being 
tempted. Jesus was not exempt from temptation, neither are we. Now we're defining terms. We're asking ourselves, what is temptation? But the church has to also understand that although temptation is a normal part of the Christian experience, in some cases, the worst thing the devil could ever do is leave you alone. If the devil sees that every time he tempts you, you armor up, you get ready to fight, you put your shield on, you put your breastplate on, you shine up your sword and make sure it's sharp. If every time he tempts you, you get ready, what he actually may start doing is leaving you alone. And now what happens is you get comfortable. You get complacent. You get used to a hassle-free, challenge-free, self-examination-free life where you just want everything to remain the way that it is. Now you get spiritually out of shape. Now, when he tries to get you, you are so out of shape, when you get up, you get short of breath. You may forget where your shield and your armor are and cannot armor up. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, a roaring devil is better than a sleeping devil, and there is no temptation much worse than that of never being tempted at all. I say all that to make one simple point. When ought we to be ready for temptation? Always, all the time. Now, before we jump into our verses, two critical pieces of background we have to understand. Jesus in the wilderness is the second Adam being tested and he passes the test. The first Adam was Adam in the Garden of Eden where the serpent tested he and his wife and Adam failed. The second piece of background information is Jesus in Luke 4 is in the wilderness being tested. The people of Israel, back in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, they were tested in the wilderness, and the first generation back then failed the test because they didn't trust God. So now we begin. Now we dive in. Jesus' temptation begins in Luke chapter 4, verse 3. But what happens in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 2? Jesus prepares. Jesus gets ready. Jesus doesn't just step onto the battle scene without preparing himself. He prepares his spirit. He prepares his mind. He prepares his body. And then he starts fighting. This is what the text says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. The text says Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. 
If you are filled with God, the devil cannot fill your head with funny ideas. Why? Because there simply isn't enough space. When you have a diet that is 1,000% God's truth all the time, you will soon find yourself becoming allergic to the lie and having violent, visceral reactions to anything which contradicts the word of God. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and how do we right now become full of the Holy Spirit? We engage in the Holy Trinity of Christian living. It's prayer, it's Bible study, and it's fasting. It's the natural person fading away, so the spiritual person grows. Jesus was physically empty during his temptation, but he was spiritually full. And that is how he resisted the devil. But in modernity, we get that flipped. People are physically full, but spiritually empty. So it's no wonder temptation wins. Temptation is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. You can't out-willpower. You can't out-strategize temptation. The determining factor as to if you resist temptation or not is, are you filled with the Holy Spirit or not? The text says Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, which means what? God led God into war. God led God into the heat of battle. Sometimes we think when God leads us somewhere, it'll be nice, quiet, still waters where everyone's peaceful and happy and there's no confusion and there is an absence of conflict. But this text tells us the Holy Spirit led Jesus to be tempted in the midst of battle. God will often lead us to places where we are to be, fortified walls of bronze. But the good news is this. If the Holy Spirit leads you into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit will also lead you out. The text says, and Jesus ate nothing during those days. In other words, he was fasting. I have an insight for the church. Fasting has nothing to do with food. Fasting has everything to do with God. And when we're talking about temptation, your spiritual power is going to be limited to the extent that you can say no to your bodily appetites. Jesus was fasting, meaning he separated himself from his flesh. Where was Jesus? In the wilderness, in a barren wasteland, on the screens. My wife and I were just in Israel, and I told the tour guide, take me to the wilderness. He said, are you crazy? I said, no. I just read the Bible a lot. Take me there. This is a picture of the wilderness. It is a barren wasteland. There's no life. There's no water. There's no trees. The only thing underneath your feet is dirt and rocks, and it's hot, and there's no shade. After 45 seconds in the wilderness, my wife said, let's go back to the air-conditioned car. What's my point? The point is that the wilderness is completely separated from the world. Wait a minute. So Jesus separates himself from the world. He separates himself from food, from his bodily desire. So he's now trained to separate himself from those two things. So when the devil now tempts him with the world and the body, 
he's already self-separated. Oh, now we see why dedicated private time in prayer and fasting is so important in resisting the battle against temptation. So that's how Jesus prepared. Now the temptation starts. Luke chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. And the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So the Son of God, God in the flesh, is about to embark on his rescue mission for humanity. He's about to save the world by his public ministry and going to the cross. Then the devil, evil incarnate, darkness in the flesh, is now tempting him. And the devil begins his diabolical scheme by tempting Jesus with bread. That sounds strange. The devil's supposed to be crafty and sneaky. Why is he tempting God with bread? Because we have to realize, number one, when we ask ourselves, how does the devil tempt? He's very, 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 very subtle. And even though he's talking about bread, this temptation has nothing to do with bread. How does the devil tempt? He begins, number one, by attacking your temporal weaknesses. Jesus was without food. He was therefore hungry. So the devil says, Jesus, come on. Your belly's empty. It's hot. You're in the wilderness. Just tell this stone to become bread. After all, you've had a long day. I'm here tempting you. You must be weary. After all, you deserve this. Just use your divine power, eat some bread, and we'll all go home and be happy. He was taking advantage of something in which Jesus was temporarily weak. When you have a sleepless night, when you hear something, when you see something, when your day just doesn't go the way you wanted it to, and now you are off balance for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, for the rest of the season, be careful. Because the devil likes to take advantage of your temporal weaknesses. But it's more than that. If you asked me to turn a stone into bread, I couldn't do it. Why? Because I'm not God. That's not a temptation for me. Wait a minute. So the devil was actually asking Jesus to use an ability that only he could do to solve a temporal need. He was asking Jesus and luring him to use a particular skill that only Jesus has. Because if the devil can't get you when you're weak, he'll tempt you using what you're good at. Are you intelligent? He's going to try and make you use your knowledge to crush people as opposed to educating them. Are you loving? He's going to try and make you love someone to death. Are you a hard worker? He's going to try and make you run yourself ragged to the point where you work so hard you forgot what you are working for. There will, beloved, be seasons when we are hungry, but our talents 
always stay with us. And what the devil likes to do, he likes to entreat people to use their talents in ungodly ways to serve the self and not God. But there's still more. We haven't gotten to the core of this temptation yet. Being hungry is not sinful. Feeding yourself when you're hungry is not sinful. Jesus using his power to feed people is not sinful. How do we know that? Because he uses power to feed thousands by, ble by blessing loaves of bread and fish. But here is what the devil is getting at in this temptation. The devil is trying to get into Jesus' head that he ought to provide for himself and solve his individual problem because God won't. The core of this temptation is the devil is trying to make Jesus distrust God. And if he makes him and gets in his head that he ought not to trust God, then Jesus will say, God won't provide for me, and now as a result, I have to. The devil is saying, Jesus, provide for yourself, because God won't. At its core, this temptation has nothing to do with turning a stone into bread, and it has everything to do with unbelief. The devil is saying, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you shouldn't be out here with me. If you are the Son of God, you shouldn't be out here in the wilderness. It looks as if perhaps God has forgotten about you. Now turn the stone into bread, which at its core is a direct attack on Jesus' faith so that Jesus will be driven into sin, to consult his own abilities, to consult his own advantages, and use his unique skill set in ways that God has not ordained. But Jesus would have remembered. He would have looked back and remembered the people of Israel in the wilderness. He would have remembered in the books of Exodus and Leviticus that the people in the wilderness had a belly full of bread, but they didn't trust God. He would have remembered that in the wilderness, in a place where no one could buy bread, in a place where no one could put a loaf into an oven and cook it for dinner, in that place that God gave the people more than bread. He gave them manna. He didn't give them regular earthly nourishment. He gave them supernatural, divine nourishment from above. God provided an extraordinary substance. And Jesus would then realize, if God provided for his people, Israel, in the wilderness, then will he not also provide for his beloved son in whom he is well pleased? Will he not also provide for his adoptive son and his adoptive daughter in whom he loves? So how does the devil tempt? At its core, he tries to make you distrust God. So how do you resist? 
The devil wants to try and make you distrust God. How do you resist? It's simple. You trust God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, because a life full of bread, but a life without God, is not going to end well. And it's no coincidence that the first words out of Jesus' mouth after he's commissioned to be the Messiah is, It is written. Which means what? It means the Bible says. It means God has said. And if God has said it, that means it's true. And if it's true, that means you don't pay attention to anything else. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. But here's the crux of it. When the devil tries to get you to distrust God and the resistance point is trusting God, that doesn't mean you're just quoting scripture in the air. That doesn't mean you're just regurgitating or throwing a book at the devil. It means you actually have to believe God. If you don't know God, you don't have a shield. So when the devil fires an arrow, it pierces you. If you just know scripture but don't believe in the God behind the scripture, that means you have a shield, but it's getting dusty somewhere in the corner. But when you believe God, when you trust God, when you realize that God became a human being, he lived and he died and he was crucified for you, and he rose again demonstrating that death cannot hold him. When you believe that fact and you embrace and hold on to it, now you have a shield that you're holding on tightly to. It's a full body shield, head to toe, and no matter what fiery dart the devil throws at you, it doesn't stand a chance because your shield of faith says, it is written. God has said, therefore it's true, I trust God, not the devil. It is written. Because what truly sustains life, beloved, is not bread. It's trusting God. The text tells us that. Jesus was without food for 40 days. Here's an expert medical opinion. A human being cannot survive 40 days without food. It's impossible. Which tells us that something else was sustaining Christ's life. God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Second temptation. Verses 5 to 8. And the devil led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So how does the devil tempt? He shows Jesus something. The devil is always showing somebody something. He's showing us a shinier, prettier, bigger, more popular, more influential version of something. 
He's always showing us something so our eyes will be delighted and the fire of desire in our hearts will go from minimal to max. And his implication is that if he can show you something, then he can give you something. But there's a catch. Because if he actually gives you what he shows you, there's always a fine print, a finer print, and a finesse print. But he's not trustworthy. So if he shows you something, he may not give it to you just so that he can now show you something else. So how does the devil tempt? He shows us something. But what did the devil show Jesus? He showed him all the kingdoms of earth. Now let's think about this for a second. If Jesus was the king of all the kingdoms of earth, would that be a bad thing? And the answer is no. The Bible even tells us that in the end of days, Jesus is going to be King of kings and Lord of lords over the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. A world ruled by Jesus would be a great world. You would have a king built upon, sitting on a throne built upon a foundation of truth, justice, and righteousness. So on the surface, the devil wasn't offering Jesus a bad thing. And if Jesus wasn't thinking, he could actually perceive of this as an opportunity for self-advancement. But let's go deeper. Was the world the devil's to give? The devil showed Jesus everything and said, this is mine. I'm free to hand it over to whomever I please. But was the world the devil's to give? And the answer is no. It is true, the Bible does say, John 12, 31, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is the ruler of the world. But that means he's the ruler of a particular spirit of the age or an order that governs the affairs of individuals. The devil still operates in a world in which God is sovereign, meaning the devil was not free to hand the kingdoms of the earth over. Do you know what Satan is doing to Jesus? He's overselling him. He's showing him something and making a promise that he can't make good on. And it's no surprise that the father of all lies is lying. And as with any good lie, it's not 100% deceit. It's mostly deceit mixed in with just a little bit of truth. The devil's overselling. He's showing Jesus something he could not give. And the devil also makes Jesus a promise. He says, Jesus, this world is mine. I can give it over to you. Just bow down and worship me. But let's think about this. Has someone already made a promise to Jesus to give him a kingdom? Hmm, I've read this before somewhere. Let's search the scriptures. Wait, Daniel chapter 7. 
the Ancient of Days, God the Father, already promised to hand over everything to the Son of Man who was Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 2, it begins, Why do the heathen rage? Why are the nations in uproar and the people devising a vain thing? God's response is, He laughs. He laughs because he has already installed his king upon Zion. Wait a minute. If God the Father has already promised Jesus everything, what is the devil trying to do by offering Jesus the kingdom of earth? And here's the core of it. The devil was offering Jesus, here it is, a shortcut. The way the Father was going to give the kingdom of heaven to a son is by Jesus going through the cross, is by going through suffering. God's plan is always you'll get a crown. But you get that crown by going through the cross. What the devil is telling Jesus at its core is, Jesus, you shouldn't go through this cross business. You shouldn't pay for sin. You should not be the savior of humanity. I will give you the kingdom that your father promised you. Just take it now, bow down and worship me. And the only reason why someone would take a shortcut and why they'll take their prize now as opposed to later is if they doubt God's plan. If they think God's plan is too complicated, if they think God's plan takes too long, if they don't understand God's plan, if God's plan involves too much fighting, if you just want to lay down and get everything you want right here, right now, then you will gladfully and willfully take the shortcut. And here's the catch. If Jesus did take the shortcut, it wouldn't have been a kingdom ruled by Jesus. It would have been a kingdom where Jesus bowed down and worshiped the devil. And the devil knows what you worship is what you serve. It would have been a kingdom of compromise. It would have been a kingdom of mixture. It would have been a kingdom where Jesus would be casting out demons in the name of the devil. And let's not fool ourselves. Even though the devil said he would hand the kingdom over, let's not think he will gladly and willfully give the reins to Jesus. Because as Matthew Henry once wrote, quote, the devil knows if he can get a partner, he shall soon be sole proprietor. The devil tells Jesus, therefore, if you worship before me. This tells us something critically important. Devil worship does not involve someone sitting in a dark room in a pentagram with blood on their face. Devil worship simply means doing things the world's way and becoming indebted to the devil. And that is how he becomes the ruler of the world. Individual human choice that prefers the shortcut over God's plan. So how do we resist? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.3 and says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Worship means serving. Worship means listening to. Jesus says, there are no shortcuts. Devil, if I'm here in the wilderness for 40 years, that's okay. Because that is what God has preordained and designed. Jesus knows in his heart, God's plan is always, you may suffer now so you can have the best later. And here's the thing. God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. So if God devises a plan, knowing everything, and knowing how every other plan will work out, why would we ever compete with omniscience? If I try my plan, if you try your plan, and that plan now fails, who are we going to be accountable to in the end? God. There's no use in deviating from a plan perfected with omniscience. Now you may be asking yourself, okay, preacher, how do I know what God's plan is? How do I know what his omniscient will is? The answer is simple. It's found in, it is written. His plan is found in Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, the word of God. God's plan always is, if you want a crown, then hang on a tree. You will, you will have the best which is yet to come, but that always means enduring hardship and difficulty now. God is omniscient. God's plan is unimprovable. Therefore, we trust in his sovereign ways. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Last temptation. Now, Matthew and Luke flip the order of temptation two and three. And in my personal opinion, I think Luke puts it last because by far, this is the most dangerous. The text says, verse 9 to 12, And the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In these verses, the devil quotes scripture when he says, it is written, he will command his angels, and when he says, on their hands, he's quoting verses from Psalm 91. So the devil now gets smart. He says, okay, Jesus, you love your Bible. You love quoting scripture, so I'm now going to quote scripture for you. And what the devil now does is he weaponizes Scripture against Scripture, and he weaponizes Scripture against God. Psalm 91 is messianic, meaning it's really talking about Jesus. So look at how diabolical the devil is. He's using a psalm about Jesus to try and kill Jesus. Psalm 91 overall, when you read the entire psalm, it talks about the security of a person who already trusts in God. Someone who already knows God, who already believes God, who already has faith in God. And as a result of that already trusting, 
They are now protected by him. Psalm 91 opens by saying, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It doesn't say he who goes on top of the temple and jumps to see how God will respond. The end of Psalm 91 says, this is God talking, because he, the godly person, has loved me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. When we analyze the whole of Psalm 91, it talks about someone who trusts in God and as a result... God will protect them in all of their ways. What the devil now does is say, because God has promised to protect you, jump and see what happens. There's the twist. There's the twisting around and weaponizing scripture against scripture. How does the devil tempt? He, this is important, write this down. He uses a defective system of Bible interpretation. How does the devil tempt? He uses a defective system of Bible interpretation. What's an effective system of Bible interpretation? An effective system is you always allow the whole to interpret the part. You always allow God to speak for himself so that scripture interprets scripture. And you always interpret one piece, one verse, one chapter, one story, one component of what God says in context of everything he has said. That way, the full counsel of God's word is always speaking to us. Because when we allow the whole to interpret the part, what we find very quickly is that the Bible is very repetitive. It says the same stuff over and over and over and over and over and over again, and there are no genuine surprises. So what does the devil do? He allows the part to interpret the whole. He doesn't quote Psalm 91 in its entirety. Even when he quotes verses from Psalm 91, he omits particular phrases. And this is why this defective system of Bible interpretation is so dangerous. Do you know what you can prove? If you take away from God's word, using the Bible, do you know what you can prove if you omit pieces of God's word? The answer is anything you want. Do you know what you can prove using the Bible if you add to God's word? Answer, anything you want. Do you know what you can prove using the Bible if you allow the part to interpret the whole? The answer is anything you want. And a favorite trick in modernity, very fancy trick nowadays, is people will use a tactic where they'll say, God's truth was true back then, but it's no longer true now. But here's the catch. The Bible never says it's no longer relevant. If you ask the Bible, if you ask God, God says all scripture is inspired by God and his word is settled in heaven forever. The only way someone can make the claim that the Bible no longer applies is if they start with them right here, right now, and then go back and tell God 
he's no longer relevant. How does the devil tempt? Using a defective system of Bible interpretation. This is why this is such a big deal. You show me any cult in the history of the church or any major heresy, and I guarantee you at the core of almost every one of them is a defective system of Bible interpretation. But there's still more to this temptation. Let's go deeper. The devil brings Jesus up to the top of the temple, and he says, jump. Jesus was already safe. He was secure, and the devil, now, the devil now entreats him to move himself from a place of safety to fall down to the depths below. And what the devil was hoping was that Jesus would either fall to his death and the Messiah would no longer be, or Jesus would consult his own will and ways and literally fall out of the will of God, tempting Jesus to be his own murderer using Scripture. The devil was tempting God, and here's the core of this temptation. The devil was tempting Jesus to presume against God. The devil took something good and turned it into something bad. He twists a promise where God promises guidance for his children and turns that into an opportunity for self-exaltation. So he could plant in Christ's head the funny idea that if I jump, now God must, he has to protect me. In other words, the devil was entreating Jesus to name it and claim it. And if Jesus did actually jump, that would not be gargantuan faith. What that would actually be is unbelief masquerading as gargantuan faith. The only time you need to test anything is if you're not sure. I know for a fact, 10,000% sure, my son is my son. I don't need a DNA test. I don't need family records because I'm sure. The only person who would need to test is if they have doubt. The reason why a scientist tests a hypothesis is because they're not sure it's right or if it's wrong. But when you really trust and believe in God, you therefore do not test him. Testing is a sign of unbelief. So the core of this temptation is the devil wants Jesus to presume against God and to put God on trial by saying, let's see what God will do to me. But there's still one level deeper that makes this temptation catastrophically dangerous. Jesus is the head of the church. In other words, the devil was going after the church leader. And if the devil can get a church leader to adopt a defective system of Bible interpretation, and now a shepherd 
begins drinking from a polluted well, what now happens? The shepherd now, in the name of God, begins leading sheep to the well. They drink the poison, and now everyone gets sick. And the diabolical part of that is it's done under the guise of religion. My dear Christian brother, my dear Christian sister, you may not have heard that funny idea from the devil. You may have learned that funny idea in church. And this is why this is so dangerous. Because since the Garden of Eden, there have been people playing loose and fast with God's word, and the result is that people get hurt. People sincerely get hurt, and there is cataclysmic damage. And God, by his grace, will always... That's why we had prophets. That's why we had the New Testament. That's why we had the apostles. God is always raising up prophetic voices that say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Because by his grace, God always wants people to know what it is written really says. The only people that God allows to play loose and fast with his word and he doesn't correct them are people that he intends to destroy anyway, i.e. the devil. See how dangerous this is. How does the devil tempt? Using a defective system of Bible interpretation. How does Jesus resist? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. True faith does not equal testing God. True faith equals trusting God, meaning God said in his word exactly what he meant, and he meant exactly what he said. And when we let the whole interpret the part of Psalm 91, we see that psalm gives the godly person security in trusting God, not brashness and arrogance in testing him. Church, even the devil knows scripture. If you have 10 Bible verses memorized, amen, not a bad thing, but the devil knows 100. If you have 1,000 Bible verses memorized, amen, not bad, but the devil knows 10,000. Again, resisting is not about just knowing words, just regurgitating Christianese. It's about trusting in and believing God, knowing God is God. Therefore, he never ever needs to be tested. God Almighty, the Son of the living God, always needs to be trusted. That we may love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. In conclusion, I'll say this. When we look at... Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus. Matthew ends his account in chapter 4, verses 11, where the text says, The devil left Jesus, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Which tells us what? That God delivered his son. 
God saved his son. God was trustworthy. God was watching the entire event all along, and he was true to his word. He delivered those who trusted in him. God's plan is reliable, and he will deliver those who walk in his ways. Luke ends his narrative in, chapter, in verse 13 by saying, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This goes back to what I said at the top. Because although the devil is looking for an opportune time for him, that usually means it's an inopportune time for us, which tells us the plan of readiness to be ready to fight temptation is always everywhere all the time. And Christ's temptation didn't end here. His temptation was not an event. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced a testing then. When he was so much under duress, he sweated blood. But the final testing of Christ came at the cross. Where his body was not starving, but his body was broken and pierced. When he was in a spiritual wilderness, being separated from God the Father in order to atone for sin. But at the cross, although Jesus could have used his power to take himself off, Jesus decided it is better to die in the will of God than to distrust his heavenly Father. And just like in Matthew 4.11, God vindicated his son then. How do we know that? Because three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus finally and fully defeated temptation. He is therefore the key for us to know how to resist. So now that we know that, how do we resist using Christ as, as our example? Number one, Jesus is our example. He believes God. He responds with scripture, but the power is not in the words. The power is actually in trusting God. Jesus is our substitute. If we go head to head with the devil in the wilderness, we will invariably fail, but we will never have to because Jesus passed the test for us. So why would we ever fight the battle ourselves when we call upon his name and he will intercede for us? And finally, Jesus is our refuge. I want the church to realize something cataclysmically important. God will always be God, regardless of what human beings think, say, or feel. But the devil's power is limited by human choice. Realize something. The only thing the devil can do is suggest. He can't make you do anything. The only thing he can do is show you something and put something in front of you and say, don't you want that? Don't you like that? Wouldn't you like to have that? But now what has to happen for him to have any sway is the tempted person now has to act. Now they have to choose to believe his lie is valuable and now act based on that temptation. Satan's power is limited by human, by human choice. So when Jesus Christ is your refuge and the only thing that you take solace in is the Messiah, Satan now can't get inside of your heart. He can't manipulate you and he can't compel you to do 
anything. Satan can only manipulate you if you choose to believe the lie. But with Jesus Christ as your refuge, you now have peace, comfort, security, and triumph. But someone's asking themselves a question. They're saying, wait a minute, Bible teacher, isn't Jesus God? Didn't Jesus have access to more resources to fight the devil? And I dare say you, beloved, right here, right now, have access to more than Christ did. Jesus Christ had access to the Holy Spirit, so do you. Jesus Christ had access to prayer, so do you. Jesus Christ had access to fasting, so do you. Jesus Christ had the word of God, so do you. Jesus Christ had the love of his heavenly father, so do you. But more than that, do you know what you have? You have Jesus right now interceding for you. You call upon him, you now have an advocate in the heavenly throne who can equip and empower you to defeat the devil. But more than that... This is the icing on the cake. We have the resurrection. Jesus Christ put to death the old version of you that falls. You can look at the old version of yourself that falls to temptation. You can look at them dead, buried, and gone. You are now a new creature, raised to new life, free to serve your Lord and your Master. And now that you know Jesus Christ is the best there is, and your heart delights in him, why would you ever settle for the devil's crumbs? If you have Jesus, beloved, you don't need any thing else. Submit, therefore, to God. Step number one, submit, therefore, to Jesus Christ, the one who raised a new life and defeated temptation. Submit to him. The devil can't touch you. He will have no power over you because you have God's truth in your heart. God's truth holds the deed to your heart, and therefore, the lie can never imprison you. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.